Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we will read together, beginning at verse 10 and reading through verse 17. I remind you again, this is God's Word. He gives it to us because He loves us, and He also gives us His Spirit so that we can understand it, take it in, and by His grace, work it out in our lives. So, hear God's Word, 1 Corinthians 7, beginning at verse 10, to the married... I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for this word. Thank you for what uh, lies beneath it, for the rich texture of grace and mercy and vision and hope beneath this particular passage. Would you give us your spirit so that we can understand what's going on here? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Brandon uh, and Jennifer, having had uh, the privilege of baptizing your son, Eli, um, I now have the unfortunate responsibility of running the risk of offending you. People uh, have asked through the years, why do we do this? Why Why do we baptize infants? Where is that in the Bible? And that's the question that, that we want to try to get at uh, this morning. What I want to try to help us understand and see, for those who do wrestle with this and who may have questions about it, uh, is why it is that we believe it really appropriate and right and biblically consistent that we apply the sign of the covenant, the waters of baptism, to a covenant child like Eli And for others of us who have already sort of wrestled through this and and come to terms with it, um, I guess this is something of a refresher, but I'd certainly encourage you, uh, as Martin Luther and various others encouraged us, and even as our own confessional statements encourage us, I'd encourage you to remember your own baptism. Remember your own baptism. 
See it as a mile marker along the way. See it as a a stake driven in the ground, a, a tangible, visible, fixed thing that was done and to which you are tethered and connected and which reminds you of the great grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ and how that grace has come to you. So there's the application before the sermon. But I'd like for this passage, 1 Corinthians 7, to lead us into this, this whole discussion. I'd like to look at this passage and think about the subject of infant baptism. And as we do that, there's a word that I'd like for you to keep in your minds. And it's the word continuity. I want you to keep in mind the idea of continuity. Continuity of practice. Unity, continuity throughout the scriptures. Because it's a critical, critical interpretive principle that lies beneath our understanding of baptizing infants. So, let's begin and let's start by looking at the language of 1 Corinthians 7. And I want to call your attention particularly to verse 14. And ask you if you aren't rather stunned by this language. Actually, start at verse 13. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live, uh, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. An unbelieving husband, an unbelieving spouse, declared to be holy. I can only imagine the kinds of images that are sort of conjured up in your head as you think about holiness. You Some of you probably think very theological kinds of things. Um, Some of you see uh, robed, sandal-footed monks running around in monasteries someplace. Some of you may see ascetics living in caves who've left the world, abandoned the world, which uh, really is a problem. You know this, don't you? Because no matter where you go, there you are. The problem when you try to leave the world is that you take you with you and you are the problem not the world. So I don't know what the images are that may be conjured up in your mind as you think about these things, but that's rather striking and startling language. That because an unbelieving spouse is connected to a believing spouse, because of that connection, that unbelieving person is called holy and the children in that household are called holy as well. Let's... Let's talk about this. Let's elaborate this. And the first thing that I'd like to do is just just sort of explain what's going on. Give this thing some context. And the context really is this, that Paul, uh, at some point in the late 40s, early 50s A.D., went to this city of Corinth, which is on the isthmus Below Greece, it's on the Peloponnesian Peninsula, connecting the Peloponnesian Peninsula to Greece, uh, a port city, an influential city, a wealthy city, a, uh, a profligate city, an immoral city, a city where sexual license and sexual immorality were pervasive. In fact, there is a verb that crept into the language of the day to Corinthianize was to be an immoral person. 
So, you know, it's a pretty amazing place to be thinking about taking the gospel. But Paul liked to go to amazing places, didn't he? He liked to go to stunning places. He liked to go to places where there was real darkness. He liked to go to places like, okay, it's a slight promotional thing, an encouragement for you to pray for my son-in-law and my daughter. He liked to go to places like the University of California at Berkeley to preach the gospel in those places, and that's what he did. He went to Corinth, he preached the gospel, people began to respond, but as inevitably happens, and you can read about this in in Acts chapter 18, verses 5 and following, what inevitably happens when the gospel goes to a place like that, there are those who respond and there are those who don't, aren't there? And if you read the narrative in Acts, you see that happening. You see that those who do respond, respond with glad hearts, and there are both Jews and Gentiles who respond. But sometimes that mixed response is reflected in families, not just in a wider community, but in families. One partner responds, the other doesn't. Mom goes to the market, Somebody says, there's this guy preaching. Let's go hear him. She goes. She hears. She responds. She believes. She returns home to her husband. She tells him what has happened. He looks at her like she is from Mars. The husband goes to the library. The husband hears, there's a guy preaching. Let's go hear him. Somebody has talked about him. He goes. He hears. He listens. He responds. He believes. He goes home. He tells his wife, this is what happened. She looks at him like he's... No, I got it backwards, didn't I? She's from Venus. He's from Mars. She looks at him like he's from another planet. What is she to do? What is he to do? They find themselves. They find themselves in these mixed marriages. They begin to grow in their faith. This faith becomes the defining reality of their lives. And it's happened and it continues to happen. One spouse is interested. The other spouse is disinterested or suspicious or mocking or even on occasion threatening. What is the believing person to do? It raises all kinds of questions. And if you read this passage in its larger context, there are questions that emerge because one of the things that Paul has encouraged these Corinthians to do is disconnect themselves from what is impure and immoral and what can corrupt them. If you read chapter 6, you see it of 1 Corinthians. Varieties of settings in which people are encouraged to do things in a new way because they are now connected to Christ. And being connected to Christ means everything gets changed, everything gets rejiggered, everything is reoriented, and you begin to disconnect from those things you used to be connected to. And so here I am, a person who has come to faith in Christ in this now mixed marriage. And I'm hearing Paul say to me, 
1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So here I am, a believer, married to an unbeliever, person who's not a Christian, person who is a pagan. Am I contaminating myself in this union? Should I separate? And Paul's answer is simply no, no. That's what he says here. But not only does he say no, again, verse 14, not only no, don't separate, but this. The unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. That's the situation he's addressing. That's the reality that he's addressing. Mixed marriages. People wondering, what do I do? We could go off, couldn't we, right here at this point and and try to work out some applications for people who find themselves in the midst of those circumstances. We could look at other passages in which the believing person is encouraged, admonished, to pray, to persevere, in fact, to live in such a way, and that's implicit in the text here, to live in such a way that that changed life actually becomes something compelling in the sight, in the eyes of the unbelieving spouse. See, the gospel really does change things, folks. It changes things. But the focus here is upon what it is that Paul intends for us to understand when he uses this language. What does he mean? What does Paul mean when he says the unbelieving spouse is made holy or sanctified by the believing spouse and that the children are holy? Well, let's be clear about what Paul is not saying to be true of an unbelieving spouse or the children of a believing parent. He's not saying that by virtue of the faith of the believing spouse, the unbelieving spouse is saved. He's not saying that the unbelieving spouse is regenerated by virtue of the faith of the believing spouse. He's not saying that the unbelieving spouse or even the children are delivered from the consequences of sin are anything less than a sinner desperately in need of the redeeming and saving grace of Jesus, the saving blood of Jesus. Brandon and Jennifer, here's where I run the risk of offending you and maybe even the rest of you. We must always remember that Elliot Jeffrey McShay, while the son of his parents, Brandon and Jennifer, and the beneficiary of God's covenant relationship with Brandon and Jennifer, is the son first of his first parents, Adam and Eve. And by virtue of his connection to his first parents, he inherits from them their sickness. 
He inherits from them the same disease, the same virus, the same cancer that his parents inherited from those first parents. Their faith cannot do what needs to be done in the soul of Elliot Jeffrey. Their faith cannot inoculate him and give him some sort of inherent or intrinsic resistance to the disease that he inherits from his parents. No, Brandon and Jennifer, Eli, just like David, was conceived and born in sin. Eli was brought forth in iniquity. And I get, I fully understand, because we did it, and many of you have done it. I fully understand why we dress Eli in a white garment on the day of his baptism. But let me tell you, friends, that garment does not represent what Eli is by nature. That garment represents what we trust Eli will be because of God's grace. We've got to get over this. We've got to understand that Eli comes into this world and what is true of Jeremiah or what is true of each of us, which Jeremiah reflects upon in chapter 17, verse 9, is true of him. See, I, you hate to say this to parents. It's just like on wedding days when I use Jeremiah 17.9 as the text for my sermon as I look at a bride and then look at a groom and see the mother of the bride sitting in the front pew. I actually have the audacity to read Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? And that's the text for my homily during a wedding? Why? Because if these two people don't get that their only hope is the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the power of His grace, their marriage doesn't have a snowball's chance in Gehenna. (laughs) And the same thing is true for Eli. Eli comes into this world with a heart that is deceitful, with a heart that is desperately wicked, a heart that is so deeply disordered and rebellious that it conceives and it plans and it executes plans that are incomprehensible as the parent watches this child. I mean, come on. How many of us, I've said this before, how many of us have had to teach our children to be rebellious? How many of us have had to teach our children to be disobedient? How many of us had parents who taught us, explained to us the ways of disobedience and rebellion? It just kind of comes naturally, doesn't it? And sadly, tragically, 
That is the case for Eli. And there is only one medicine that goes deep enough and which is thorough enough to eradicate that rebellion, that disobedience, and that medicine is the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, we don't help ourselves by cherishing naive notions about the innate goodness of human beings. We actually hurt ourselves. We do ourselves a great disservice. And we do ourselves a great disservice by cherishing these notions of the innocence of little babies. It just isn't true. It just isn't true. So, Let me say it again. What Paul is not saying is that the faith of a believing parent provides some sort of safeguard or inoculation against the harsh reality of a sinful nature. Paul is not saying that by virtue of the faith of a parent, this child is saved. But here's what Paul is saying. And we want to affirm this with every bit of, the conviction that we affirm the first thing that I've said. I've said to you folks, I've said to you folks on numerous occasions about a number of different things, that there is this sense in which Christianity is radically bipolar. You find yourself affirming things that seem to be mutually exclusive. And I'd suggest to you that this is one of those things. We affirm fully, gladly what the scriptures teach about the nature of the human heart but we affirm with equal conviction and equal strength what the Scriptures affirm when the Scriptures teach us that God does something not only for the one who believes, but He does something for the child of the one who believes. He does something for the unbelieving spouse of the one who believes. And what is that thing that He does? He separates that unbelieving spouse. He separates the child of that believing parent from one standing to another standing. He consecrates. He sets apart. That's what the word means. In its basic meaning, it means to set apart. It means to consecrate. It means to separate from one use and purpose to another use and purpose. And that use and purpose is connected to the God who does the separating. Read through the Old Testament. Read about the construction of the temple and all of the utensils in the temple and how they are set apart. They're just gold and silver. They're wood and they're stone. But they're set apart. They're consecrated from one use to another use. Uses which God defines and determines. That's what we're talking about here. When God declares that the spouse of a believing person is set apart, he's saying that, that, or is holy, he's saying that person is consecrated. See, there's a connection. and, And this is where this idea of continuity has to remain in our heads. You see it throughout the scriptures. You see it beginning with Abraham, right? It was Abraham. This is Genesis 15 to 17. Go read these passages. 
It was Abraham who believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. That's, that's the point at which Abraham crossed over. There was a, there was a point at which the penny dropped. There was a point at which Abraham stepped across the threshold into the house. God had been leading him and directing him and summoning him. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know what was up. He's trying to figure it all out. But the point comes, a point in time came for Abraham when he stepped through the threshold, crossed over the line, and God declared him just, justified, righteous in his sight. Abraham becomes the paradigm for the Apostle Paul in Romans. The picture of what it is to become a Christian. You come to that place where you profess faith in Jesus Christ. Abraham, Jesus says, John chapter 8, Abraham looked forward to see my day and he saw it and he was glad. Abraham is justified on the basis of a promised Messiah. You are justified on the basis of a Messiah who has come. One Messiah, one Savior on both sides of the cross. There's a beautiful example of continuity. But here's the thing. When Abraham believed in Genesis 15 and God gave him a covenant sign in Genesis 17, the sign was not only administered to Abraham, it was administered to his sons and to his grandsons, and not only to his sons and his grandsons, but to any male who associated with Abraham. And there's a whole big thing going on with circumcision, which I'd love to talk with you about, but we don't have time. The point is, covenant is established, sign is given, sign is administered not only to the one who believes, but to the sons and the grandsons and any other males who associate with Abram's household. You see, one stands for, represents the many, and the many are connected to the one. Can, I, can we have a little fun here? Through 30-plus years of ministry, I've gone to lots of people's homes to, to visit them in their homes after they visited our churches. Lots of times, this is a beautiful thing. We're having fun, right? We're all friends here. We're not fighting. Sometimes Baptists have made their way to our churches, and they've visited, and they've liked some of what they've heard, and so I've gone to visit them. And sometimes I've gone to the house of a Baptist, and on the doorpost of that house is this little, this little metal thing that's attached to the doorpost. And it's not a phylactery, but it's a little metal thing that has on it a reference to Joshua 24, verse 15, which says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I want to ask my friends, the Baptists, what are you doing putting that on your doorpost? You assuming responsibility for all the members of this household? You assuming responsibility, some sort of connection between you and the individuals, each of whom must come to the place where they affirm individually their conviction, their belief in Jesus Christ? You're assuming responsibility for that? They'll say yes, and I'll say you're really a Presbyterian. You're really covenantal. 
Joshua 24.15, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You come into the New Testament, Acts 2, I'll give you the passages, you can look them up. Acts 2, 37-39, when Peter preaches the gospel, people are convicted, they're confronted with the gospel, they're confronted with their own sin, they cry out, what must we do to be saved? Peter says, response, his response is, repent and be baptized, each of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, for this promise is for you, Period. Now, this promise is for you and your children after you, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. What am I illustrating here? I'm illustrating continuity. Abraham and his household, Joshua and his household, whoever is there on the day of Pentecost who responds to the gospel, that man, that woman, together, with a household, with others, children. This promise is for you and your children after you. You see what God is doing. He's taking an Abraham. He's taking a Joshua. He's taking that man, that woman on that day of Pentecost. And he is setting them apart. And when he sets them apart, they drag their loved ones with them into that consecrated and separated standing. A unique and different relationship to the God who calls and who consecrates. That's a beautiful thing. That's a glorious thing. Read Acts chapter 16, verses 15 and 33, the story of Lydia. See, here's a beautiful thing about this. In the Old Testament, it's Abraham. In the Old Testament, it's Joshua. But you see, on this side of the cross, things do get wider, don't they? They do get bigger. And here it's Lydia, a woman, and her household set apart, consecrated by virtue of her response to the gospel. It's a beautiful thing. It's as stunning a thing in the culture of the day as is the appearance of Mary as the first eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus. I love how gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Luke in the book of Acts, are not ashamed to take on the cultural divisions of their day. And whether by explicit teaching or by implication, tell us and show us that the gospel divide, tears down those things that divide us. Lydia and her household. The Philippian jailer and his household, read the passages, the households are baptized. And, and I know, I know what's going on in the minds of some of you. This is a friendly fight, right? I know what's going on in the minds of some of you. In the minds of some of you, there is the assumption that everyone in those households responded either as Lydia did or as the Philippian jailer did, I will tell you there is nothing in the text in either place that requires drawing that conclusion. What I'm pointing to here is continuity. It makes perfect sense. It's what they did on that side of the cross, what we do on this side of the cross. One believes the household comes. One believes the household comes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16 
Paul says, it's a parenthetical statement. It says, I did baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Households. Continuity. And then you come to chapter 7 and you read this striking language. A woman responds to the gospel. A man responds to the gospel. Their unbelieving spouses together with their children are considered holy, set apart, consecrated. And those children, as children of the covenant, it seems to me, by clear implication, clear implication, by theological, biblical, exegetical consistency, those children should receive the mark of the covenant, the mark of that being set apart and consecrated and separated. Now, I know, I know what the questions are because I've answered them many times through the years. Where is the scriptural evidence for infant baptism? I'm trying to give it to you. I'm not giving you chapter and verse because there isn't chapter and verse other than to give you the passages which very strongly suggest, based on precedent established in the Old Testament, that children are included in the covenant community and therefore ought to be marked with the sign of the covenant. My question in return is this. To those who struggle, and I know you're struggling with this, and I want to struggle through this with you. My question in return is, where is the scriptural evidence for infant dedication. There isn't any. There isn't any. And yet my Baptist brothers and sisters want to dedicate their children. How come? Here's why. I say this as a friend. Their hearts are better than their heads. Their hearts are more consistent than their theology and their hermeneutic. Have I picked a fight? In our hearts, we know things that our minds don't always know. And in our hearts, we know that our children stand in a different relation to the living God who rescued us by His grace. And we want to do something with these children to acknowledge what God has done for us and what we trust He will do for them. And so we dedicate them. And my friends, what that is, is a dry baptism. It's a dry baptism. And in our heart of hearts, we know that it's right to do it. So I just want to say this. Just use the water. (laughs) Just use the water. There's a whole lot more to say about this regarding continuity of practice and how on the other side of the cross there was an Old Testament sign of admission and that is circumcision and and an Old Testament covenant meal which is Passover and both of them are bloody and they point ahead to the cross and the blood that is shed and now that we're on this side of the cross there's another sign of admission and it's the sign of baptism and there's another meal and it's the Lord's Supper and these are not bloody because the blood has been shed but there's a continuity of practice. 
whole lot more that could be said. But what we're saying and affirming this morning is that when God calls, he calls in such a way as to confer extraordinary blessing, not only on the one who believes, but on those who are connected to that one. And that in itself is an extraordinary sign of his great grace. So that's why we pray. That's why we assist. That's why we encourage, because we want for everything that is promised in the waters of baptism, promised in the sign of the covenant, to become reality in the life of the one who is baptized. Let's pray together. And let's pray together for Eli. God, we thank you for this precious covenant child, and we thank you for our covenant children Lord, I know in this room, and my heart breaks over this as I know yours does, that there are covenant children, the beneficiaries of the blessings of the covenant who have walked away from these things. And it is heartbreaking to these parents. And I beg of you and boldly even demand of you that you overrule in their lives And you pursue them so that the promises which you have made in the covenant might be fulfilled in their lives. And we pray this morning for Eli and ask you, O God, as we have already, that there would not be a moment, not a moment, when he does not know and love and delight in and thrill at the sound of the name Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.